Recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. Welcome to episode 44 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. And I'm a PR guy in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, and you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and even subscribe to our YouTube and SoundCloud channels. And you can get our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. All right, Ewan. I was uh, I was going to ask you how you are right off the top here, but I got to say we're hitting like 25 degrees now in Hong Kong. I mean, it's almost beach weather here, so uh, I-, I wanted to put that out there first. <laughs> it's 25 degrees here too, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is quite warm in other parts of the country, is my understanding. More on the west coast, it has warmed up a bit. At least that's what I've heard. Yeah, I mean, maybe it has. I don't know. It's um, it, we we've had a bunch of whatever. You know, it, it, <laughs> yeah, it's winter. We're we're Canadian. This is the most Canadian for anybody who's listening to the show that isn't Canadian. Really, you know, the most Canadian thing you can do is to talk about the weather. It is, yep. you know, the 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 very very embodiment of Canadian small talk. And uh, Cam, you're you know a. a a good friend of ours um, had moved to to California, and I remember going down to visit her and her uh, her husband. And I was like, "What do you guys do for small talk here? Because it's basically just sunny and warm every day. You can't talk about the weather. How do you fill that gap?" And she said, "You know what? It's actually kind of challenging. You're right. You'd be surprised how much of a crutch." you know, the weather is to lean on when you sort of run into somebody in an elevator or have one of those awkward encounters with a, a colleague you don't know particularly well or something like that. We, we lean on it so heavily, you know? You know, I find that a bit strange. I, like, I still find it strange if a stranger brings up the weather out of the blue with me, like even in Canada, because like you say, you and it does happen. You know, I can think of times where I've been in an elevator where there's kind of an awkward silence and then somebody might say, well, you know, really raining hard today, eh? Or something like that. And it still it still feels forced to me, even though it is sort of part of Canadian culture. Yeah, I would I I was out for a walk about three hours ago with um, you know, with my wife and my daughter and passed a guy sitting on his front porch having a smoke and I said hi and he said hi and then he responded, Pretty cold, pretty cold. <laughs> and I said, Yep, yep, it is. You know, it's Toronto in February. It's it's not going to be warm, but uh, even then, even in, in those circumstances, people still, they go for the weather. And then you both carried on your merry way. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All would word P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word. Ask us at prlawpodcast.com or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. Okay, Ewan, what have you got on deck this week? Well, Cam, I wanted to talk about the job interview. Mm, you know, it's, okay. it, it, we're, we're coming up to the end of February, and this is typically, um, a, you know, usually a, a busier hiring season. You know, people usually, if they're going to let employees go, 
that sort of happens kind of late November, close to close enough to the end of the year, but mm-hmm. not so close that it sort of falls in that Christmas vacation range that's sort of almost like a blackout period for terminations and uh it sort of carries over into the beginning of january and then by february usually kind of companies are looking at at hiring so i've been chatting with a lot of people lately about um employment agreements and reviewing contracts for for new job offers and it occurred to me that you know a, a chatting about job interviews and do's and don'ts for employers employees might not be such a a bad idea yeah and you know what it's the same over here too i think um you know for us it's after chinese new year um when you know people either have resigned and are looking for work you know or there are openings uh in a company for for that year and we have just finished the chinese new year so i think this is uh it's very topical for this part of the world as well perfect okay well i mean you know the first thing in the application process itself your CV, right? Let's make sure your CV is mm-hmm. up to date and that it accurately reflects your experience. And, you know, that may sound like stating the obvious, Cam, but you'd be surprised the number of employees that uh, that embellish uh, their accomplishments or skill sets uh, or, or outright lie. Um, I came across a, a survey conducted by Chexter. Uh, they're a prominent reference checking company in the U.S., and according to a survey that they did in in 2020, apparently 78% of candidates admit that they have or they would consider misrepresenting themselves on their job applications. So, um, you know, not an insignificant amount of people that were prepared to come right out and say, sure, I'm I'm, I'm prepared to lie on a, on a job application. I feel like there must be a lot of gray area here. I mean, obviously, you cannot make a declarative statement that is false, uh, which is lying. <laughs> but um, I, I assume there is a lot of embellishment on the on the CV in just ways that might be hard to detect or might be hard to prove. But they're just sort of, you know, those slight little improvements that might be made here or there that are not entirely false, but are not entirely true either. And I think that's probably really hard to kind of police. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's always the gray area that's going to be, be tricky to monitor. Um, you know, where you have to be careful as an employee is something that is a complete and utter fiction, you know, maybe a, a particular academic credential that you don't actually possess would be a good example. And then another one that often gets employees into trouble is if they've been, you know, or were fired from a previous employer. And then during the job interview, the new prospective employer asks them, you know, well, hey, why are you here? What, you know, what happened with this previous position? Why did you leave? Um, and employees are often very, very hesitant to say something to the effect of, well, I, I you know, I left because I got fired. Um, or I left because I, you know, I stole something from my employer where, you know, regardless of what the circumstances were, even if it was just, um, you know, a simple downsizing that really had nothing to do with the employee's performance, even in those situations, um, you know, often an employee is, is concerned about saying I got fired and how that might come across. So they lie and they say something like, yeah, you know, it just, it wasn't a good fit or it was the right time for me to leave. And that's a problem, Cam, because if the employer were to find out after the fact that you were fired and they had relied on your word effectively that, you know, you left under under more pleasant and amicable circumstances, I mean, that could be cause for for discharge in terms of getting rid of you after they've hired you. Yeah, you and I mean, you know this area well. 
How often do employers or prospective employers do these background checks? Because in the course of my career, um, I feel like they are done a lot now that I've become more senior sort of in the industry. But previously, it seemed like the employer didn't do any background checks. And, and I'm wondering how prevalent is it? Because doing that is actually a lot of work. I mean, I think a lot of times companies do rely on what the what the prospective employee puts on their CV. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it really depends. You're right in terms of the role. I mean, common sense, typically higher profile, higher paying, more senior roles generally come with more extensive background checks, reference checks. Often they're coming through recruiters in those sort of um, higher mm-hmm. end positions that are fewer and far between. So, you know, you all, you already have sort of a recruiter or a headhunter who's effectively vetted the employee before they even get to, to sort of the job interview stage. Um, you know, where, where things get far more precarious are, yeah, I mean, in sort of, lower paying, more, more sort of lower level entry level positions where, you know, employers may not be prepared to sort of invest the time, the money, um, or the energy in, in doing adequate background checks, but they really, really, really should, you know, it really behooves all employers to make sure that they know who they're bringing into their office. Right. Yeah. And it does, it does rest with them. Right. I mean, if they don't do a background check and they find out there's a problem with the employee, then that that is on the company uh, for not doing that check. Yeah, I mean, it certainly it certainly could be. Now, again, um, you know, if you've got an employee who's who's being dishonest about the circumstances under which they left their previous job, um, you know, and it takes an employer, you know, a couple months to figure that out, then you know, the employer still has some still has some recourse. But you're right. I mean, if if they find out years down the road that a particular you know, credential that you claim to have on a resume isn't actually something that you possess. I mean, what do you do as an employer at that point? Um, you know, do you turn around and do you fire the employee? Do you bring them in? Um, I, I mean, it, it gets really, really complicated really quickly, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, and the other thing we got to look at is the interview itself and questions to avoid. And this is a big, big, big issue. And, you know, we'll we'll talk about why. I mean, the most, the most obvious concern here, Cam, is that you're not as an interviewer, asking questions that fall around those prohibited grounds of discrimination. So again, you know, in, in, in looking at Canada as a case, you know, we have federal human rights legislation, there's provincial human rights legislation, and prohibited grounds. So I mean, things like age, race, ethnicity, country, place of origin, gender, sexual orientation, physical, mental health, disability, uh, religion, marital status, children, all of these sorts of questions. These are, these are issues that you should really avoid as an employer. You should not be asking anything that could be construed as discriminatory in any way, shape, or form. And if you're an employee and you're sitting in a job interview and someone asks you a series of these questions, you may really want to seriously consider whether or not that's a place that you want to be working in. Yeah. And, you know, even in this part of the world, Ewan, I can add one uh, item to that list that you just gave out. And that is um, sort of status as a parent, because while it's wrong, it is quite common still in this part of the world to ask a female prospective employee if she is married. And then if so, does she have children? Because these employers are looking to avoid 
having somebody go on maternity leave and look after those those payments. And, you know, it's 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 wrong and discriminatory to ask that even here. Uh, but it's still something that uh, persists. And that's despite the fact that, you know, maternity leave in Hong Kong is uh, six weeks. I mean, it's not very long, um, but they even try and avoid that sort of short period uh, of, of leave. So these are still things that I do think in, in the West and in, in Canada and the U.S. and in, in parts of Europe, this has gotten much better. But in other parts of the world, these are still real challenges. Yeah. And and again, it's always the gray area, right? We can sort of set out that, hey, you shouldn't ask these types of questions. But I mean, you know, often these issues come up if if the interviewer, for example, is making a comment about something they did on the weekend with their family um, and maybe makes an offhand comment about their their son or daughter. And you or as as the individual being interviewed is trying to relate to them in some way, shape or form. You say, oh, yeah, my you know, my daughter does that all the time. Well, effectively, you've just disclosed that you're a parent and you have a child. You know, if you happen to reference a partner in the same sentence, then perhaps you've you've also disclosed your marital status. Um, these things come up all the time in in job interviews. And again, you know, it's it, this kind of stuff can be the very, very precarious. You know, in, in the legal profession, for example, there's been a lot of effort taken by large full 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 service firms kind of with hundreds of lawyers to try and streamline the hiring process to make sure that it's not discriminatory in any way. So, you know, things like blind applications where you can't look at a name um, that would be indicative of a particular ethnicity that, you know, might lend, um, depending on the individual reviewing the application to say, yes, I'm going to give this person an interview or no, I'm not. Um, and ensuring that the kinds of questions that you ask during the job, the, the job interview are specific to the job. Um, the job description and clearly speak to the role itself rather than, again, these sort of casual discussions that you can get into um, where you can really disclose a lot of information that gets you to that sort of fit. You know, everybody talks about fit in a company and we have to find employees that have the right fit. Um, But that can be a pretty precarious endeavor and can carry with it all kinds of sort of examples of of adverse discrimination where an employer is effectively giving favorable treatment to one applicant over another without even realizing they're doing it right yeah and this is bringing back so many memories to you and just talking about this subject because you know there was another instance and this was uh you know many many years ago so this isn't isn't recent but you know i was looking for somebody in in my own team and i put out the job ad and got some cvs back and, um, you know, one of them I, I reviewed with my boss at the time, you know, who said, oh, like, look where she went to school. And I'm thinking college, university, but my boss was referring to high school. And um, yeah, I did. I, there was no way for me to tell whether it was good or not. But I was told that that was not a good school, that it's in a poor part of the city. And, um, you know, that's not somebody that we would bring on board. So these things, I mean, I, I do bring this up only because this is a lot more prevalent than people think, um, this sort of judging that happens based on these little bits of information that a lot of people would think are innocuous or benign and uninteresting, but they do come to play. And I think, uh, I, I, I do think, you know, the, the West in general is probably quite far ahead on these things, but even there, um, your advice is good, you and just be careful what you disclose, because it, it might seem like nothing to you, but it might be something to the person who's hiring you. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, when you're trying, when we're talking about that sort of fit thing, you know, w- people always sort of talk about this in sort of abstract 
you know, sort of circumstances. Well, let's sort of take a very specific example. And, you know, in the legal industry, again, there's been a lot of articles written around this issue because, you know, sort of associate junior associate positions and articling positions at top tier firms are extraordinarily competitive. I mean, we're talking hundreds, often thousands of applications for a handful of, of positions. So really, really competitive jobs. And, you know, there's been all kinds of interesting examples of during an interview process, maybe you're, you're sitting with someone and they're talking about what they did on the weekend. You find out that your interviewer played a round of, of 18 or playing golf. Well, I mean, right out of the gate, that sort of denotes a particular, mm-hmm. particular class. I, I, I don't know that anybody would, would try and argue that golf is a working class game. I mean, maybe, maybe it is in some places. I don't know. But, you know, that, that would then provide an opportunity for an interviewee who perhaps is a golfer and comes from a, come from a, you know, a, a more wealthy background to sort of chime in with, oh yeah, you know, what's your handicap? And all of a sudden you've made a connection and established a connection with this individual who's interviewing you that has absolutely nothing to do with your qualifications for the role, your ability to perform the role, to engage and, and work with other colleagues in the company. We're talking about something that's very, very specific, but also carries an extraordinary amount of weight in determining who ultimately will get a role in, in these types of positions, right? And from the employee point of view, that's a good thing. I, I mean, if you get an opportunity to make that connection with the person interviewing you, that's undoubtedly a good thing because it does sort of set you apart and build more uh, human connection that can go a long way. Yeah. And I mean, uh, you're, you're right. And of course, the argument to the contrary is simply that these are, these are not the sorts of issues that should be explored in a job interview and that, you know, for these sort of higher, higher end positions, the question should remain largely substantive and related to the position itself to ensure that you're not providing any sort of unfair advantage to a pers- one prospective candidate uh, over another, you know, in a, in a recent article I, I read, Cam, and I'll, I'll put a link into it for the show notes because of something I was, I was going over. I'd read a, uh, a couple weeks ago and, and I thought about it in sort of preparing today's segment. Um, this was an articling student who was interviewing for, uh, for some law jobs here, here on Bay Street in Toronto. And in one interview she had with a, with a law clinic, and she was given a hypothetical situation in, involving client. And after answering, she was asked if her response to the situation would change if there was a person of color working with her at the table. She responded, does that question assume that I'm white? <laughs> and this is a very, very relevant response, Cam, because this woman happened to be a person of color. So she's sitting in a job interview as a person of color. The interviewers are going off this sort of scripted list of questions and they, they get to sort of their token kind of diversity question and put this to her and completely oblivious to the fact that you're asking a person of color if their approach to a situation would change if there was a person of color in the room. And her whole argument that she sort of goes on, she talks about numerous examples where you know, they were sort of put, these sort of stock diversity questions were put to her. And this reminded me, Cam, of a lot of the stuff we've talked about on this show um, during the emergence of the the Black Lives Matter movement and, and corporate America's response and how we had a lot of companies effectively paying lip service to these issues, right? Sort of sending out a tweet or a statement, um, but then not really implementing any sort of substantive change internally within the company. And I think if, if, 
employers are going to be asking these sorts of questions and addressing these sorts of issues, and frankly, they should, um, then you know, do your work, do your homework, and make sure that you're not just paying lip service to an issue that um, really should be more taken seriously than 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 the the level of seriousness that you're you're giving it. Yeah, and I, I want to add here too. Like I do a, a lot of interviews of prospective employees, um, at least one per week, um, and you know. I do use those opportunities to try and get to know the candidate, especially now when we are sort of in these socially distanced times where there's not as many in-person meetings. If you're interviewing somebody on, you know, over a Zoom call uh, or something like that, you can you can see them sometimes, but it's hard to get a, a, a grasp or get the essence of a person. And you do want to do that. I mean, it is very easy to say, stick to sort of a list of, of questions and, you know, the the... The only considerations here are the person's professional qualifications. But like you say, Ewan, there is that, that question of fit, which is very undefined and very subjective, um, but it's there. And, and you do want to get a sense of your potential employee's character and their thought process and their personality and their value system and all of these things. And so, you know, sometimes conversations can go down, down different paths um, in that process. And I think... That's a good thing, but I do think employers, for sure, as you say, they need to be careful about the questions that they are asking, for sure, because they, they cannot ask certain things, really, if we boil boil it right down. And, and to just be, be, be careful going through that process. And then, like you say, for employees, to be careful what they disclose, because it might seem like something that's unimportant, but it might actually be something that they are eventually judged on. Yeah, and that, you know, a lot of these issues are things that employees they don't have to disclose. And again, they shouldn't have to disclose these, these issues, particularly anything that falls around one of those prohibited grounds that we talked about, you know, and, and then also cam, you know, I, I always talk when I'm speaking with clients about sort of the, the two sides of, of the coin that, that I deal with in doing what I do. And on one side you have the legal, right? The legal issues. Can I legally do something? Can I legally not do something? Can my employer legally or legally not do something? And then on the other side of that coin, you have the practical reality of the work environment and that these are people that you work with and that work with you. Um, and that's that's where that gray area sort of comes to bear, right? That it's never as black and white as well, you've asked me a question about my race or ethnicity, and I know that you can't ask me that question. Well, that may very well be the case, but if if it's an individual who wants the job and they know they want the job and they know they need the job, then perhaps they're prepared to turn a blind eye to something like that. So, you know, and they shouldn't have to. So really this, this like so many things um, in the employment context is about education. Employers need to educate themselves on questions that are appropriate for a job setting and questions that are inappropriate for a job setting and employees need to educate themselves as well in terms of, you know, how do I best present myself and, you know, make my best case for, for me, uh, an advocate on, on my own behalf in a job situation. Um, and of course, as I said, the most important thing there is don't lie, don't embellish, you know, stick with what's on your resume, have faith and belief with what's in your resume and, uh, and, and don't try and push a bunch of fictions. Well said, don't lie ever, actually, not just on your CV. Try not to lie as a general practice. Uh, anything else you want to add on this one, Ewan? No, only a very, very quick 
quick anecdote, which uh, I've always remembered around this issue, Cam. And this was when I was going for my articling interviews once upon a time. And in my year, there was a, a fellow student who interviewed at a large, prominent Bay Street firm, very, very high profile. And he walked in and had his interview. It went exceptionally well. And then as he was being walked out by a couple of the partners, they stopped at the lobby of the, the office. And there was a huge grand piano there. And one of the partners turned to the applicant and said, hey, so-and-so, you have like a grade eight conservatory training in classical piano. Why don't you sit down and play us something? Oh, no. Yeah. Well, you know where the story's going, right? Oh, no. Um, he didn't have any training, in oh, fact. No. And he put it on his resume and trying to make himself sound like a more well-rounded candidate with you know a broad spectrum of interests and uh suffice it to say that was uh that was the end of that oh wow that is so embarrassing yeah don't do that that's the moral of the story show your support to the pr and law podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on patreon every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week if you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. I think we can have some fun with this one today, Ewan. I want to talk about the one, the only, Senator Ted Cruz. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Sorry about that. America, because of course he's our he's he's Canadian. He's yes. our contribution to the United States, Indeed. right? Indeed. In fact, uh, the senator and I share a uh, hometown. In fact, of Calgary, oh, I'm Alberta. Sorry. Yes. sorry to hear that. <laughs> anyway, I mean he's um, he's a Republican senator for Texas. In case you you're not familiar with him, uh, he's Canadian, as you had mentioned. Although he has renounced his Canadian citizenship, so he was born in Canada, but he is no longer Canadian. He ran for president in 2016. He lost out to Trump, though, in the Republican primary. And he was part of the faction that um, voted to not certify the 2020 presidential election results. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, there are a lot of people that don't like Senator Ted Cruz. Uh, he's not a popular member of the Senate. Uh, in fact, uh, Lindsey Graham is another Republican senator from South Carolina. And this is what he said of Ted Cruz back in 2016. If you killed Ted Cruz on the floor of the Senate and the trial was in the Senate, nobody can convict you. I don't know if you caught that because the sound was not very good, but he said if you killed Ted Cruz on the floor of the Senate and the trial was in the Senate, nobody would convict you. And it was quite a famous statement uh, by Lindsey Graham on Senator Ted Cruz, which really does speak to kind of Cruz's popularity uh, with his colleagues. Um, just as an, a, an aside, you and Ted Cruz actually spent some time in Hong Kong last year. Not a lot of time. Or sorry, in 2019. Seems like last year, but it was two years ago. We had those protests. And it was the first time where I had seen him on television. And I knew that he was absolutely 100 percent lying. And it, I, I do think that's rare, like as a PR person um, and who has worked around politicians really in the past. I mean, usually you do try and sort of like we we're talking about with your with your CV, maybe embellish a bit or try and try and move things still within the realm of reality and truthfulness, but maybe just sort of focusing or emphasizing certain things. But Ted Cruz said at the time that he had heard of no violence uh, from the pro-democracy side and no damage. And I remember thinking, 
by that point, there had been so many incidents, and so he couldn't possibly have that point of view. Anyway, that's an aside. I want to get to the issue that we really want to talk about. So he's the senator for for, for Texas, and Texas UN, as we know, was hit with a pretty bad winter storm uh, over the past week. You know, millions of people, up to four million people, without power. And without power at the time, they need power the most because it is freezing there. And so what was the senator doing? Well, he was boarding a flight to Cancun, Mexico, apparently. So this broke on Wednesday evening. A Twitter user by the name of Juan Gomez tweeted a picture of Cruz standing with his luggage in the airport. Uh, and Juan Gomez, he's not a reporter. He's not famous. He's got 1,200 Twitter followers at last check. But he tweeted the the photo. And I, I looked at some of the responses. People said, you know, that's, we don't know for sure. That's Ted Cruz. You know, are you sure this is him? Did you doctor this photo? Those sorts of things. But his tweet said, quote, well, Senator Cruz is flying to Cancun while millions of Texans do not have electricity, end quote. Now, the same guy followed up with a photo of Cruz on board the aircraft. It turned out there was a Reuters uh, reporter around at the time who also got some photos. And then when he landed in Cancun, uh, people took photos of him leaving the airport with his luggage. And then text messages from Ted Cruz's wife, Heidi Cruz, with a group of her friends, was leaked to the New York Times, uh, where she was inviting others to join them and that they were going to stay at the Ritz-Carlton in Cancun which I didn't know Ewan at the time. I mean, Ritz-Carlton's are nice hotels, but it, it's it's among the best hotels in Cancun in the top couple there. So naturally, you know, there's widespread outrage about this and social media obviously vilified Ted Cruz, the traditional press piled on um, and Cruz did end up cutting his trip short and he flew back to Texas the next day on Thursday and he issued a statement. Now, this comes from a news report. Here's what Ted Cruz had to say. In a statement, Cruz said, quote, with school canceled for the week, our girls asked to take a trip with friends. Wanting to be a good dad, I flew down with them last night and I'm flying back this afternoon. My staff and I are in constant communication with state and local leaders to get to the bottom of what happened in Texas. What do you think, Ewan? I mean, I, I saw the story. I was following it. I thought, um, I'm always interested to hear what other responses are, particularly from the the pro cruise camp, such that it is. Um, and I saw a number of people commenting, saying, well, what's he going to do in Texas? Why not? If I could get out and go sit on a cozy beach somewhere, I, I'd do that too. Um, that really sort of strikes me as kind of tone deaf. I get it from a practical perspective, but, um, you know, you really shouldn't be running away. And I think... The part that was that I thought was really sort of reprehensible in all of this was that he tried to play it off as being a good dad, that he was doing it so he could take his daughters down to down on the trip as if, you know, he was chaperoning or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I always, you know, I, I understand that, you know, politicians, it's the nature of what they do. They have to try and make statements that are going to appeal to their base, but, you know, sort of laying it on your kids like that just struck me as particularly cringeworthy, you know, on cases like this. I mean, I think we all can feel that there's something wrong about this and it may seem quite obvious uh, as well. And I think it is, um, but I think we should kind of take this down a bit in terms of like, like why is this so bad? And 
you know, we, we talk, Ewan, about context a lot, and context matters. I mean, it really matters uh, in PR. It's not formulaic in terms of if one person does A uh, under a certain circumstance, that if one person, a different person does A under the same circumstance, that, that both of them are committing the same uh, faux pas. Not necessarily. It depends on the context. It depends on the circumstances. It's not a one-size-fits-all on these things. So if, if we look at the context around Ted Cruz, so first, he, he is not a warm, cuddly politician. <laughs> I mean, we, we touched, this, <laughs> touched on this off the top. But he is generally seen as capable. And he's also considered to be a, an opportunist. Uh, but again, many politicians are. So, I mean, uh, Trump beat Cruz quite badly in the primary. Trump attacked Cruz's father during the primary. But Cruz quickly forgot that and became one of Trump's sort of key allies in this in the Senate, and he did vote to overturn the election on January sixth. And again, that was a strategic move to to try and gain support from 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 the Trump supporters. He's also very calculating, and I think that's why this trip was so surprising because Cruz really should know better. This is really PR one hundred and one. Don't leave your constituents when they're suffering. And that's why it's so odd. It's very odd that Ted Cruz did this because he does know better. Um, it was a bad look. It was a big mistake. Um, and he does know better. And then on the statement, uh, you mentioned this, Ewan, the sort of be a good dad part. I mean, this sounds like he's coming up with an excuse. Um, that's how it came across to me. You know, it sort of reminds me of advice often given to people interviewing for jobs, like we just talked about. When they're asked about their biggest weakness, they somehow turn it into a positive, you know, like I can be uptight about organization and planning, you know, or I go too far in making sure I'm clear on timelines, you know, things like this. Well, <laughs> oh, those are good. These are gold, Cam. <laughs> Jeez, you should have done my you know, segment. That's fantastic. <laughs> so these are, it sounds like you're, you're taking a, a negative and you're trying to find the virtue in it and trying to show people another side. And that's not necessarily a bad instinct, but when it doesn't come off right, it's not good. It really does look then kind of shallow uh, or it rings hollow as well. And then the part with, um, you know, the girls wanted to go on a holiday again, same, same thing. I, I, I don't know why he really had to involve his girls, at least in the statement. And, I, and I'll get to this in a second as well. So the other thing you about all of this is it just, this mistake and the statement that he put out, it just makes himself very vulnerable and easy to dunk on, really. I mean, it's a simple case. It's very easy to understand. It's not complicated. It doesn't involve the budget or it doesn't involve numbers. I mean, I, this is something that people can innately understand. It's the wealthy and the connected escaping problems that regular people have no choice but to face. And I think we've seen this, you know, over and over again. And I think... You know, imagine someone in your family, Ewan, who's very sick and maybe in the hospital and another family member who takes off to Hawaii, you know, rather than go spend time at the hospital. It's not like that person can help in the recovery or help in that person's treatment, but it means something to be there. And it's a symbol. And it's something we all understand, I think, innately, is to be there when times are tough, that you're there, even if you can't do anything directly. And I think this is something that the mayor of Houston fully understands. Uh, this is Sylvester Turner, the mayor of Houston. For people who are fighting to stay warm, take care of their families, looking for a way to move forward, if nothing else, 
They expect for their leaders to be where they are, to remain on the ship and not to abandon the ship because you can have some comfort. And he also leaves himself open to his opponents as well. Um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez raised $2 million for Texas. She went down to Houston uh, to help out. And then, of course, the media piled on, as we talked about, Ewan, you know, from local Texas media uh, to D.C. media uh, and even nationally. Here's Anderson Cooper from CNN. Keep it honest, there's a lot, as they say, to unpack in what the senator said, almost enough to fill the large suitcase he brought for a trip he initially suggested was just to drop off the kids and head back straight to home. That, of course, wasn't true, nor was it true when he initially claimed it was his daughters wanting to go on a trip with friends that was motivating all of this. As for his claim that he started having second thoughts as soon as he sat down on the plane, that may be true because likely he started looking at his phone and likely saw that he was quickly on his way to becoming a trending hashtag, photos and all. He is certainly a very smart man and knows that pictures like these don't look good. But if the feelings of remorse were so intense so soon, probably could have just gotten off the plane. His wife was still on the plane. She could have gone and escorted the kids. It was still at the gate. As for damage control, well, he's definitely shifted that into cruise control. <laughs> I think there was a lot of coverage along the same lines. So, you know, Ewan, what should Ted Cruz have done? Obviously, he shouldn't have gotten on that airplane. But, I mean, a lot of times in communications, you're, you're dealing with a crisis either um, that has happened or that an individual yourself has caused. And so I'm not going to look at what he really should have done, which is not not do what he did. But just what should he have done once those photos appeared of him and, you know, the news got out of, of what was happening? And I think this goes, we talk about this on, on a lot of shows, Ewan, when there is an incident like this about sort of the three big things that one has to do to kind of put it behind them. Number one, take responsibility. Number two, show contrition. Number three, explain what you're going to do next, either to help or to make up for it or whatever it might be. So when we say take responsibility and show contrition, I mean, he talked about the fact that he was trying to be a good dad and he was going to Mexico and, you know, this sort of thing. He could have said, you know, something along the lines of people are right to be angry. This was a mistake. It was meant to be a short trip. Although it was meant to be a short trip, even one night is too long when we're living through a catastrophic winter storm combined with widespread power outages that are affecting millions of Texans. I apologize to the people of Texas. I want to make clear that I'm on my way back right now to get back to work to help. Something along those lines that is just, he accepts it. He's not trying to come up with an excuse. He owns it and he's moving forward. That's probably, I mean, I wrote that very quickly, but along those lines, if not those words directly. I thought that was pretty good. Certainly a heck of a lot better than what he said. You know, it's interesting that despite this, I mean, are there really going to be any long-term repercussions? I, I get it. He's taken a reputational hit and, you know, there, there's there been some funny sketches on SNL about him and, and, and whatnot. But, you know, is anything really going to come of this? It's too early to say, I think. But, you know, you and just back to the, the statement for a second, you know, I said he should he should own it and take responsibility, which is true. But I do think that he can share some defensive messages with media who he trusts. This is something that's common in the industry is, 
you know, you put out your formal statement that is really clear and takes responsibility, but then you call up one or two reporters who, who, who you're close with or who you really trust and you share with them that actually this was a family, you know, it happened really quickly and you were just dropping off the girls and, you know, those kinds of things. And then they can turn up in media, um, you know, on, on your behalf, if not directly from you. There's people making that case and saying that. So that, that is something that is in the toolbox uh, that can be can be used from time to time. But you do need to have, you know, journalists that, that you trust in order to carry that sort of thing out. And I mean, how long do you do you continue to speak to this issue if you're Ted Cruz, Cam? I mean, is it a matter of he, he made the statement? Is it a matter of getting a more corrective statement out there and then not speaking further on it? Because if, if it clearly, you know, has some legs in the press. So, I mean, at, at what point should he step up and speak to the issue again or, or not as the case may be. Yeah. I think he had to, uh, because that statement that we, uh, you know, played is, is, is not sufficient. And he did speak to the press actually again, which I'm going to get to in a second because he does go into uh, a lot more detail. Um, but I, I did want to just mention one more thing on the, on the PR side of this. Um, the Washington post obviously covered this story quite, quite extensively. We've got lots of links in, in the show notes. Um, but this sentence appeared in the post quote, Cruz has said he was there to chaperone his daughters, though his office initially declined for many hours to confirm the trip and didn't say whether he had planned to stay for longer. End quote. There's no excuse for that. That is horrible. And, I, and I'm telling you, as someone sort of working for a company and who, who used to work for politicians, you, you never want to have that your office didn't respond or were unreachable because it, it just it looks awful. It looks like either you're scrambling or you're sort of in chaos or you've lost control of what's happening or you're unclear about what to do next. It, it's just a, it's a really bad look. But you went back to your question. You talked about, like, should he talk about it? I said, yes, I think he should talk about it. Uh, he did. So when he was back in, in Texas, he talked to the Daily Caller. And this is what he had to say. It, it certainly was not my intention for that to be understood as, as critics have tried to paint it as, as somehow diminishing uh, the, 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 the suffering and hardship other Texans had experienced. Uh, look. Texans want this problem solved. I want this problem solved. I want the power on. We've, we've got most of the, the homes that had lost power have gotten power back. That's a good first step. We still have uh, water supply is still questionable in a lot of places, and that's frustrating. Having boil notices, that's frustrating, too. We, we need to, the first thing we need to do is correct the immediate problem. So you and he then goes on to talk about, you know, the different steps um, that need to be taken in Texas to, to, to get things running again. Um, but then a second journalist asked Cruz if he felt that he was tone deaf in taking the trip to Mexico. This clip's a bit longer, but here's what he had to say. It, it was obviously a mistake. And in hindsight, I, I wouldn't have done it. Um, I was trying to be a dad. And, and all of us have made decisions when you've got two girls who've been cold for two, two days and haven't had heater power and they're saying, hey, look, we don't have school. Why don't we go? Let's get out of here. I, I think there are a lot of parents that'd be like, all right, let me if I can do this. Great. That's what I wanted to do. Um, as I said, really, from the moment I sat on the plane, I, I, I began really second guessing that decision and saying, look, I, I know why we're doing this, but. 
but I've also got responsibilities, and, and, and it had been my intention uh, to be able to, to work remotely, to be on the phone, to be on internet, to be on Zoom, to be engaged, but I needed to be here, and, and, and that's why I came back, and then as it became a bigger and bigger firestorm, uh, it became all the more compelling uh, that I needed to come back. Um, these aren't great, these two things, but they're also not super bad. I, I do sense contrition coming from him. I think he is embarrassed. And I do understand, actually, I'm kind of amazed at how honest he was, really, admitting that, you know, it's cold and the power is off and his girls want to go somewhere. I've never seen him so candid, actually, as to just come out and say that. And so I, I'm not giving him too much credit for this because I think it was bungled from from start to finish. Um, but also in his defense, Ewan, he is a U.S. senator for Texas, but he represents Texas in Washington. He's not responsible for taking charge in a local disaster in Texas, which falls to the state. So there is that point there that's true. This this isn't it's technically not his jurisdiction to to manage something like this. He's representing Texas's interests in Washington D.C., not the other way around. Um, but as we talked about, it doesn't matter. It's symbolism that matters, and and he missed that badly. So there yeah. it is. Sorry, can I just jump in just for yes, a second? Please because, do. Again, I mean, the thing that sort of really again rubbed me the wrong way about that latter statement was, you know, I was trying to be a dad. I was trying to be a dad, and look. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I, I I get that. But let's play that out practically. I was trying to be a dad. Therefore, I flew to Cancun, Mexico. I was trying to be a dad. Therefore, I got a suite at, you know, the Ritz Carlton Hotel. I mean, I, I, I get it. But at the same time, there's all kinds of ways that you can be a supportive, loving parent that don't involve staying at five-star hotels mm -hmm. and getting on planes and leaving the country. Um, so to sort of suggest that this was really the only solution he had at his disposal is ridiculous. I mean, it also presupposes that all the other fathers that, of course, were incapable of doing the same thing are somehow lesser as fathers, which is also equally ludicrous. Mm -hmm. I, I just think that that was really the wrong tack to take. Yeah, I completely agree. And and it does look almost like shallow opportunism too. You know, he got caught. So what's he going to do? Well, I'm trying to be a good dad. That's something people can relate to. It makes me look like I'm a, a good guy. You know, it almost looks too tested out, you know, that kind of line. And it just, it rings so hollow knowing who he is. And that's where the context comes in again. I, I think maybe some politicians might be able to pull that off. Um, but Ted Cruz cannot just because of who he is, what his background is, you know, what the public understanding of him is. And that all comes into play, you know, in these sorts of situations. So, I mean, and the last thing I just want to say on this before we wrap up, why is this a scandal? Well, like maybe it should, or maybe it shouldn't be a scandal. I mean, I can hear people telling me like, you know, he was going on holiday. It's not his jurisdiction to, to, to help out in this, uh, in this calamity that's happened in Texas. He was trying to be a good dad. He got on a flight. People took pictures of him, like lay off and, and, and yeah, maybe people should lay off, but uh, you know, in PR, you and I think you ha have the same thing in, in law. Like it's not about what's right or wrong. Really? It, it, it's not, it's, it's a story. Even if you don't believe that t Ted Cruz should be responsible for this, he still is just because that's the way the world is. And he's going to get 
bad press as a result of this. And he has gotten bad press out of this. And so in PR, like we always say, we have to deal with the world as it is, not how we think it should be. It's not a matter of whether he should be able to do this or not. It's a matter of this is the blowback he's going to get. And we have to deal with it up front and honestly. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in Law podcast. All right, Ewan, uh, we've reached the penultimate part of the show. Uh, what have <laughs> What have you got on deck? Yeah, I, I read uh, I read an interesting article this morning in Insider, Cam, and this was uh, titled "The Paparazzi Who Stalked Britney Spears Have uh-huh. No Regrets." Um, written by Donald Alexander. Um, this story comes on the heels, of course, of that New York Times documentary, Framing Britney. I don't know. Have you seen this, Cam? I haven't. I have heard the documentary maker on Fresh Air talk about the documentary. I'm familiar with all of the discussions around her conservatorship, though. I'm quite familiar with that. Okay, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I haven't seen it either. I think um, some of the press that has has come from it has been really interesting. Of course, there was that apology in quotation marks, I guess, from, from Justin Timberlake Mm -hmm. talking about Britney Spears and Janet Jackson, um, which caused a lot of, a a lot of interesting commentary. There was also people reflecting on some of the interviews of Jay Leno and David Letterman um, and how, you know, they would treat women that were on female guests on their show and celebrity and misogyny that's, that's flown from this anyway. Um, this article focuses on the paparazzi, which I, I, I don't know if you know this, Cam. Paparazzi literally translates to buzzing mosquito. Hmm. Yeah, that's what they're like. In, that, yeah, <laughs> I learned this in the article. Um, so, you know, Alexander interviews a number of the paparazzi that effectively stalked Britney for years. Um, and suffice it to say, they don't really have any regrets. Uh, one of them, his name is Rick Mendoza. He's a, a Los Angeles paparazzo. And he had this to say. He said, I'm in it for the money and the history. You think I give a mm-hmm. bleep about somebody getting up on the wrong side of the bed and they don't want their photograph taken? I don't give mm-hmm. a bleep. And what's really sort of interesting is the psychology of this and the emergence of it. So it, it gives some background in the emergence of the paparazzi in North America with, with Marilyn Monroe and then just its development and sort of pinnacle and sort of the early, the early aughts. And, you know, Mendoza talks about, he, he believes that he deserves credit as a, as a paparazzo for taking away Hollywood's control of this market. And, you know, he says about Spears and other celebrities that he's photographed that, you know, we, we made these people, people, you know, he's like, I'll show, show them when they're taking out their garbage and when they're picking their nose and, this idea that they sort of reduced celebrity to, you know, the common Joe Schmo Mm -hmm. that everybody can somehow relate to. And that for whatever reason, there was a huge market for that. And that's kind of his point that, you know, people want to see these photos Mm -hmm. and I have no regrets about going after Britney Spears and getting them. Yeah. And this too fits in a larger context. There is actually a movement to reassess some of the women that were media targets in the nineties. Um, Monica Lewinsky among them. Yeah. Britney Spears is another, um, there's actually several, um, and looking at the treatment they received, um, sort of in the public eye and how unfair that was at the time and how far we've come since then. Um, and then Britney Spears, obviously with the conservatorship, 
has been become a big issue. Um, I think part of it is along the lines of QAnon in terms of conspiracy theories. Um, it's gone a little bit off the deep end, uh, but all that stuff's out there. If you want to have a look at it, the documentary is about the conservatorship. Um, and so I have a look, I, I do kind of want to take a look at it. I'd like to see it. I've heard, um, interesting things about it. So I want to, I, I do want to check it out. What I had this week, you and on deck, uh, this is from the athletic, which you can read. It is, I do believe you can read uh, a couple of free articles there because otherwise this is behind a paywall as well. Uh, but it's called protecting the child inside of me, Donald Brashear's toughest fight. And I don't want normally recommend sports articles here, but I think this is a life article uh, rather than a sports article. And it's about somebody, a story you and that we, uh, see a lot people who, when they're young, have a lot of fame, a lot of money, a lot of power, uh, and squander that and end up, um, you know, with a life oftentimes of, of addiction and loneliness and struggles with, with mental health. And this is a, a really incredible story of a guy who used to be a pugilist in the National Hockey League who was quite well known for being very tough and and the life that he's lived and it's not uh it's not glamorous it's it's very tough reading but it's something that I think uh is worthwhile uh to read and uh you know if anyone else is going through similar struggles I think it's good to find a uh, you know, someone else that, that may be facing the same kinds of issues. So um, I'll definitely put a link to that in, in the show notes. doesn't matter if you're not a sports fan or a hockey fan. Uh, like I say, it's a, it's a, it's a people article. It's about a person. So yeah, definitely check that out. Very cool. Yeah. I mean that age of enforcer in hockey, it's uh it's really a creature of creature of its time, I guess. Hey, Cam. Yeah, it really is. I'm on the side of wanting fighting out of hockey entirely. Uh, I know that's um, sacrilege to a lot of purists, but I, I, I just feel like it's ridiculous. Uh, really, when you stand back, it's not allowed in any other sport, any other serious sport anyway. And, and a lot, of, you know, there've been a lot of suicides of, of tough guys. You know, they understand, they go into a, a game, they know they have to fight. They know they've got to take on a tough guy on the other team. And, and there's a lot of media pressure and it's, um, that's a tough, that's a tough, tough life. And, uh, I think the sooner we can get rid of that, the better. Yeah. I'm with you. Anyway, you anything else you want to, you want to add in before we wrap this one up? No, no, no. That was fun as always, Cam. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you guys as well for joining us. So don't miss any show coming up. Please subscribe in your podcast app of choice or to our YouTube and SoundCloud channels and social media, of course, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, and our newsletter, which we're back to sending out every week again at prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.